This is an ABC podcast. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Aggie Dubon. We appreciate you tuning in. On today's show, well, with only weeks away from a historical referendum to recognise Australia's First Nations people, we take a look at how the Pacific community feel about the voice campaign. That it's, it's high time that we undo a, a wrong that's been done to the original owners of the land. Also, is greenhouse gas emissions absorbed by the oceans considered marine pollution? This reality requires concrete action from the international community. Scientists, including a species own, have long sounded the warning bell. Changes to the copyright laws are being made in Papua New Guinea, but what are artists really feeling like? As a member of APRA, we receive a lot of grant opportunities and we don't really have those things here in Papua New Guinea. Maybe perhaps low interest loans or something to encourage the private sector to invest more in the music industry would be fantastic. And how have many fallen to an eBay scheme or scam apologies in Fiji? More on that later in the show. For more on any of these stories, simply type into your search engine ABC Pacific Beat and feel free to share across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Well, first up, just hours after Washington held a summit for Pacific Island leaders overnight on Monday, a large Chinese training vessel made port in Papua New Guinea. The training ship will be in Port Moresby for several days, part of what's been described as a goodwill visit. But it's likely to put the US and Australia on notice as Beijing continues to expand its military ties in the Pacific. So for more on this, we have the ABC's PNG correspondent Tim Swanston joining us this morning. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Aggie. Thanks for joining us. Look, tell us what it was like when the ship arrived. Yeah, look, it was a pretty warm welcome down here at Port Moresby. There were a crowd of hundreds of people that were welcoming, welcoming the training ship Chijiguang here. Um, they were all, you know, handing out and waving Chinese and Papua New Guinean flags. So it was a pretty warm reception. Um, there was a traditional performance, of course, to welcome the uh, ship's top brass as well at this opening ceremony yesterday. Uh, and then, you know, many and many of these are Chinese diaspora here living in Papua New Guinea uh, ended up touring the ship and sort of you know, spending some time aboard as well. So there's 300 crew or so that have uh, sailed into Port Moresby and they'll be spending the coming days here doing a whole range of different kinds of activities. Tim, I do have to ask quickly, uh, so this was very much planned. It wasn't a surprise uh, port into PNG. Yes, yeah. I mean, it, of course, was planned. I mean, the ship has been basically doing a tour. This is the second stop on its tour. It was in Indonesia. It's come here, and then it's expected to head off to Fiji as well. So, I mean, of course, many people are making quite a considerable, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk, rather, about the timing of the visit as well, because the United States Summit in Washington that's been held with Pacific Island leaders as well in recent days, uh, you know, has, of course, been well telegraphed too. Um, Um, But this trip was indeed, you know, already well planned for Papua New Guinea. So then what is this visit all about? 
Well, it's the second visit of this training ship since 2019, and it is being described as a goodwill mission. It's very much hearts and minds, so to speak. Um, so we're expecting there to be sort of friendly sporting games between um, the Chinese naval officers and PNG Defence Force. They've also described that they're going to be doing other programs, although they didn't quite go into detail. There's been two PNG Defence midshipmen that have actually been on the ship training for the last month or so. So they'll disembark here at Port Moresby. Um, but of course, it does sound like there's likely to be some kind of training opportunities as well. Uh, today, there's also a visit to a school from the Chinese naval officers. Uh, here's Ambassador Zheng Fanhua, who's talking a little bit about kind of what this trip does for the two's military ties. It will add new impetus to the deepening and expanding of friendship and cooperation between our two countries and two militaries. China is willing to take this visit as an opportunity to work hard, hand in hand with PNG friends from all walks of life who support China-PNG cooperation. Hmm. I hear a lot of them talking about the friendship between the two countries, but how has PNG responded to the visit? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, it was quite a warm reception. Like I said, the Prime Minister, James Marape, wasn't in town. He's, of course, in Washington for that summit there with uh, Joe Biden, that Pacific Island Leaders Summit. Um, but, you know, uh, keep in mind, the two already have quite a reasonable defence relationship. Uh, defence Minister Wynne Buckery Ducky was there and gave a bit of a rock star welcome, was very quite vocal in his reception to the Chinese ship and the brass that were travelling on it. Uh, China is funding a military hospital at the Tarama Barracks here in Port Moresby. Um, so he was ultimately quite thankful for the visit. Here's what he had to say at the welcoming. Papua New Guinea and China relationship goes back a long way in which Papua New Guinea benefits a lot through China infrastructure and economic and human development assistance. Thank you. In military... In military space, Papua acknowledge assistant China as providing the military trainings to our defence officers. Mm. Well, the timing, uh, I know I alluded a little bit to before, is surely interesting. I mean, what are the observers saying about it? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, was was likely planned quite well ahead of time, but exactly the coincidence of the two events just sort of can't be ignored. Like some observers are, of course, saying that it could be simply a mere coincidence. But on the other hand, this could be really quite a targeted effort from China, basically a reminder for Pacific Island countries of an alternative option for security and defence. Of course, we know that Solomon Islands leader um, Manasseh Sogabare has, you know, snubbed that uh, some at Washington. Um, of course, they have very well-known defence relationships with China since that security pact signed last year. Um, so, you know, and we also know that PNG's relationship with the United States isn't entirely, you know, set in stone yet as far as a defence relationship is concerned. There's a defence cooperation agreement that was signed earlier this year, um, but that's been referred to the Supreme Court and is still yet to be ratified. So, you know, there's still a few balls up in the air as far as this relationship is concerned. And this could be an effort from China basically saying, yep, I'm st we're still here, you know, should you be willing to kind of partner with us? Here's the Lowy Institute's Mihai Sora. Both the US and Australia will interpret the visit as a manifestation of China's intent to expand its influence in the Pacific. 
The US and Australia will also be very interested in the specifics of the internship training and any other cooperative measures that are announced during the visit, particularly as both countries have been deeply involved in the security and development of the Pacific for many decades. Overall, such naval visits are part of routine diplomatic and military engagement that nations undertake, but they do take on an added significance in regions of strategic competition. Beyond the strategic calculations of governments, there's also the matter of how such visits are perceived by the general public. We've seen the usual mandatory Chinese renter crowd that accompanies official state activities. But what's more important is what will the people of Papua New Guinea make of this visit and others such like it certain to follow in the future? Yeah, Tim, uh, listening to him, a uh, bit funny about the renter crowd uh, statement uh, following the Chinese. Uh, following the Pacific Summit, though, at the White House, I mean, has PNG themselves issued any statements, though? Well, yeah. So, I mean, we've seen a statement from Prime Minister Marape, which is is quite interesting, um, basically pushing or urging for there to be more of a trade relationship with the United States. So in a statement, he said that he's used the opportunity at this Pacific Islands Forum Summit in Washington to basically ask for more follow-up action from the United States beyond security and politics to encompass trade and commerce. In the statement, he says that the full strength of their relationship must also embody development areas like commerce, trade and economics. And he's also quite pointed in saying that the United States and the trade relationship is far behind that of Australia and China. So, you know, the language is quite interesting. You know, there's been this delicate balance going on in PNG's foreign policy. It's always been US and Australia are the defence partners, while China is a trading partner. Well, here's the Prime Minister basically also saying, well, show us the money. You know, where is the trading relationship with the United States on top of also a defence relationship? So, no doubt, a very interesting development, and we're likely to probably get more from the Prime Minister on his return from Washington later this week. I love that, Tim. Thank you very much for the update. We look forward to uh, further updates on this story. Appreciate your time this morning, Tim. Very welcome. That, of course, is Tim Swanson, ABC's correspondent in PNG. Pacific Beat. Well, in a few weeks, Australia will hold an historic referendum on whether to recognise its first people in the Constitution. A key part of the proposal is establishing an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Domestically, the campaign has been divisive and fiery, but reporter Marion Farr takes a look into what the outcome will mean for Australia's reputation in the Pacific. As a dual citizen of Vanuatu and Australia, Aaron Taviri is looking forward to voting in the referendum. Yes, I will be voting. I've set my reminder. And I think I have to go to the High Commission to vote, to do a postal vote. The 28-year-old lives in Port Villa and has been getting his information about the voice to Parliament on social media. Oh, I think it's great. Um, especially growing up in Vanuatu, we've always um, had uh, strong thoughts on independence and uh, being self-reliant and things of that nature. So... I'm definitely going to support it and I think it's a good thing for uh, just moving forward in the future. The referendum will be held on October 14. Australian citizens will be asked if they want to alter the country's constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The Voice will be able to tell Australia's Parliament and the Executive Government what it thinks about matters of importance to Indigenous peoples, but it won't have the power to change or veto laws. When it comes to voting, the question is simple, yes or no. 
but the debate behind it has been far from it. Uh, it's, a, it's been a bit of a sensitive topic, I guess. I've seen a lot of it in the media. Both camps have waged fierce campaigns, trying to sway Australians to vote one way or the other. Some domestic polls have shown growing support for a no vote, although they must be interpreted with caution. One of the Pacific's most respected voices says a vote against the voice to parliament could affect how Australia is seen in the region. I think it, it will damage the reputation somewhat. Professor Pal Alawalia is Vice-Chancellor of the Pacific's largest university, University of the South Pacific. He's worried about how a no vote could be interpreted in the Pacific. I think I think people are trying to be careful not to uh, not to sort of make this a, a referendum about race, but I think that that will be something that will probably be a conclusion will be drawn, which is rather unfortunate because I think a lot of this is also about ignorance. For Pacific Islanders living in Australia, there's also a lot at stake. You know, I can really only speak from educational perspectives. The underattainment of Pacifica communities is very similar to the underattainment of Indigenous people. Professor Alawalia is also an Australian citizen and will be voting in a few weeks. And I'm now speaking as an Australian, that it's, it's high time that we undo a, a wrong that's been done to the original owners of the land. And he's not the only one speaking up. The Pacific Elders' Voice, an independent group of leaders from the region, issued a joint statement supporting the voice to parliament. One of its members, former Kiribati president Anote Tong, says the Pacific is watching. The voice and uh, Australia's uh, relationship with the its indigenous First Nations people has been has always been something that uh, was of very close interest to the Pacific Island countries. As a Pacific Islander and champion of Indigenous rights, Mr Tong says he supports constitutional recognition. But not all First Nations Australians agree that the proposed change is the way to go. I asked Anote Tong if that swayed his opinion on the referendum. I, for one, admit that there have been those criticism from within the Indigenous population. But uh, the question was, is it better that where we are today or is it uh, damaging in some way or another? I think, yeah, there's more to be done. I acknowledge that. But putting the voice through, uh, is it a positive step from where we are today or is it not? He says while it may not be perfect, the voice is a good start. I think it's these progressive steps that should be encouraged rather than cutting them off mid-sentence. Mid yeah, I think um, it would be such a pity. And that is former president of Kiribati, Anote Tong, ending Marion Farr's report. Pacific Beat. 18-day hearing at the World Oceans Court in Germany seeking a protection of the seas has now concluded. The case brought by the Commission of Small Island States on Climate Change and International Law asked the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea to decide if greenhouse gas emissions absorbed by the oceans should be considered marine pollution. More than 30 states, including Pacific nations Vanuatu, Tuvalu, Nauru, Federated States of Micronesia, as well as Timor-Leste, and several organisations made their submissions. Rhonda Robertson is the Pacific Communities Director for the Geoscience, Energy and Maritime Division and she spoke to the Tribunal. The best available science shows us greenhouse gas is already causing damage, increasing our ocean temperatures, increasing sea level rise and increasing ocean acidification. 
The best available science confirms the urgency for states to keep warming below 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius by rapidly curbing fossil fuel greenhouse gas emissions. This reality requires concrete action from the international community. Scientists, including SPC's own, have long sounded the warning bell on the tremendous implications that climate change will exert on our society and Pacific leaders have heard this call. The 2021 Pacific Island Forum leaders Ocean Statement commits urgent action to reduce and prevent the irreversible impacts of climate change on our ocean, reiterating that climate change is the single greatest threat to the livelihoods, security, and well-being of peoples of the Blue Pacific. It calls on Pacific Rim countries to expeditiously implement relevant measures to prevent and effectively manage marine pollution in accordance with international law, including meeting or exceeding nationally determined contributions, formulating mid century low emissions development strategies in 2020 and may include commitment and strategies to achieve net zero carbon by 2050. This radical ambition shown in the Pacific must be matched, especially given the pressing climate change science related to ocean warming, sea level rise, and ocean acidification. And that was SPC's Rhonda Robinson speaking at the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea in Hamburg, Germany. Australia and New Zealand also addressed the tribunal. An advisory opinion by the court is expected early next year. Stay tuned because up shortly will be your news wrap with producer Carl Evans here on Pacific Beat. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. That is right, it is that time where we get to travel around the region, see what is happening uh, with our news wrap, of course, provided by our producer, Carl Evans. How are you doing this morning? I'm well, Aggie. Happy Wednesday to you. Yes, it is. It's hump day. We're just getting over the week. And, of course, we've got quite a few stories to get to. Uh, the first one here, Vanuatu's opposition has outlined the reasons uh, why they've lodged a vote of no confidence against Prime Minister Cecil Kalman. I mean, but this is just three weeks after he took office. What's happening there? Yeah, no, you're certainly right about that. So, as 
explained by MP Ralph Regan Vanu uh, during a press conference yesterday, they believe he has committed three major mistakes. So the first is related to an alleged constitutional breach that occurred within hours of uh, his election. Regan Vanu said that despite the court ruling uh, that Kilman's case for his appointment as PM was valid, he then proceeded to appoint 13 ministers out of a possible 26, thereby violating the constitution. The second reason relates to one of his ministers. So the man he appointed as Minister of Infrastructure and Public Utilities is actually being investigated for the misuse of government funds for personal gain in a separate inquiry. And lastly, Mr. Reganvanu has accused Kilman's government for failing to fulfil international obligations. So he's pointed to the absence of the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs at a recent foreign minister's meeting. And he also highlighted that uh, Kilman scheduled a parliamentary session during the same week as the United Nations General Assembly uh, was uh, was convened, which is obviously a critical international event. Uh, and therefore, Vanuatu was not represented at it. That's crazy. I mean, has Mr. Kilman responded to the motion of no confidence, though? Yes, obviously, it was a pretty hard-hitting article. Uh, according to uh, the Daily Post, his response uh, was very brief. Uh, he said simply just that if the majority decides to remove him in this upcoming vote of no, no confidence, then that, that is their democratic right. So it didn't really address uh, any of the allegations, but... Yeah, look, just just another day in, in Vanuatu Parliament at the moment. It's uh, it's all kicking off. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Japan's ambassador to the Solomon Islands has expressed disappointment over remarks by Manasi Songovare. Why is that? Yeah, so they are in relation to the comments he made at that uh, recent United Nations General Assembly, where he urged Japan to explore alternative solutions uh, for its treated nuclear wastewater and to immediately cease its discharge into the Pacific Ocean. So when he addressed the assembly, he said said he was actually appalled uh, by Japan's decision. And the comments seem to have caused a, a bit of hurt uh, to Japan, uh, with the ambassador, Miwa y- uh, Yoshiaki, telling media outlets that Sogavare's comments should ideally take place bilaterally uh, and, and not being taken straight to an international uh, arena. He also reinforced that reports confirmed Japan's plan to release the treated water uh, into the sea at Fukushima do align with international safety standards. However, Sogavare uh, has been outspoken in his beliefs that that report, which was conducted by the International Atomic Energy Energy Agency, uh, was inconclusive and its scientific data shared uh, was inadequate, incomplete, and he even believes biased as well, which is a pretty heavy thing to say. Well, but it'll just be a continuous drama. Uh, well, we head to Fiji. They now have a High Commissioner to Australia. Who was it? Yeah, so uh, FBC Chair and Co-Founder of the People's Alliance Party, AJ by Amrit, has been appointed as a as Fiji's new High Commissioner to Australia. Um, he he re- replaces the former High Commissioner, who was posted to his role back in November last year. Uh, the appointment also means that he will be tendering his resignation uh, as FBC Chairman, meaning that uh, PM Sidavani Rambuka uh, in his capacity as Minister for Public Enterprises, will appoint a, a new uh, Fiji Broadcasting Corporation chair in the coming weeks. Wow. But I understand not everyone is happy with this appointment. Is that right? No, uh, you, are, you are in fact right about that. So former Prime Minister Mahendri Chaudhry uh, has actually raised concerns 
concerns uh, over Mr. Amrit's experience. Um, he told the Fiji Sun that uh, he lacked the qualifications and knowledge required for the position uh, and labelled the appointment as no different from the way the uh, the previous government, Fiji First, went about appointing their own people to, uh, to high-level positions. Uh, he said there were a lot of career civil servants, particularly within the, in the, within the diplomatic space, that, uh, that had been passed over. So uh, yeah, you certainly can't uh, please everyone when it comes to politics, Aggie. That is it. <laughs> well, look, we thank you, Kyle, for providing our news rep for today here on Pacific Beat. Want all the latest Pacific news, sports and entertainment delivered in your inbox every Thursday? ABC Pacific have launched a free weekly newsletter with exclusive content from across the Pacific by your favourite ABC presenters. Be the first to know about upcoming events and competitions in your area, plus much more absolutely free and direct to you. It's easy to sign up. Just go to abc.net.au slash pacific and enter your email to join today. Well, welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie the Bull. A sorry situation is how Papua New Guinea's Information and Communications Technology Minister describes the country's copyright laws. Timothy Masiu has vowed change with a government review, looking into how the law, which is seen as out of date and ineffective, can be changed. While many have welcomed the move, Alan Kadir, president of the Central Music Association, says others in the industry are eyeing the announcement with caution. It's a welcoming announcement um, because for as long as I can remember, uh, we haven't had a um, collection body for royalties in Papua New Guinea. Um, and I don't think we've, we've ever had one. Um, in fact, for us to receive any sort of royalty payment here in Papua New Guinea, we have to be registered with uh, APRA, which is obviously in Australia, so Australasian Performing Rights Association. Um, so... If the um, a, a government will see this through 100% to make um, the amendments needed for such a body to be set up, it's a really welcomed um, uh, announcement. Why is it important for PNG artists to have strong copyright laws? Well, there's two basic answers to that. Number one is obviously for the protection of uh, their work, for their creative works and for their intellectual property. Um, number one. Number two is also for some sort of remuneration for their work. And uh, for music, it comes in the form, well, it comes in many forms, but in terms of copyright and um, performances through um, a royalty payment. Um, and that's a form of remuneration that artists need to, to survive um, other than gigs. So right now, uh, local artists just purely survive on um, performing uh, gigs and that and comes, you know, uh, when you can afford to have gigs. But um, in developed countries like Australia, you can also, another stream of income is um, having your music aired on television or radio or even streaming as well online. And um, those are the essentially the two things that we're really missing in this country. Yeah, right. So the current legislation is the Copyright and Neighbouring Rights Act of 2002. And this is the the piece of legislation that the minister wants to look into and review and and potentially reform. What's currently missing from it? Why is it not giving artists a fair share at the moment? Well, uh, Hugo, uh, unfortunately, I'm 
not a lawyer. I, I wish I had a bit more <laughs> legal background to be able to, um, to answer that. But That's okay. From, from my from my layman or, or artist point of view, um, um, what I've come to understand is that our current Copyright Act is outdated, and because of that, um, the, it's it's just it's general in the sense that artists have um, a right to uh, look after their, or to safeguard their, their work, but it doesn't have um, the uh, framework for setting up um, what's called a CMO. So it's a collect, co collective management um, organization, is what CMO stands for. That's essentially what APRA is. APRA is a CMO. But for such a body to be set up, in any country, there needs to be law and regulation around what they can and can't do. And I believe that our current uh, laws do not, uh, do not have provision for such a, a body. I think there's other amendments uh, that also need to be made, but specifically to do with, um, uh, you know, some sort of a collection body. Um, I know that that provision needs to be, to be made. Yeah, and I mean, as you as you mentioned, PNG's copyright laws have remained unchanged for over twenty years. You know, despite mm. the advent of streaming services, uh, which have really revolutionised the way that artists make their money. So, artists in PNG have long called for more robust copyright laws. Why do you think the mm. government's only waking up to this issue now? I guess that that would be for the government to to answer. Um, I know that music and copyright artists, um, copyright laws are not the only laws that are outdated from what I understand. PNG has always been a little bit reactive in regards to what happens in the industry and not so much proactive. And I think these amendments will allow for the government to take a more proactive approach to not only um, updating the legal landscape, but also like you said, looking at that digital framework and where does P what does PNG's music um, industry look like in the you know twenty first century? Mm. And I know the Central Music Association. You represent a bunch of artists and uh, have been flying the flag for stronger copyright laws in Papua New Guinea for some time now. What what's the word among Central Music Association and your artists? Is there are people pretty happy to see this announcement? Yeah, I think as a whole, the artist, I mean, it, there's a probably a, a three different layers of, of response to that uh, type of um, question. Number one, for, for some artists, it's a little bit uh, daunting um, because they don't really understand copyright and, and what that means and, and what are their rights. And um, they don't understand the language and what's the real world um outcome going to be. So th there are some that are lost in translation. Um, number two, um, for, for many of us who, who do have a general understanding, we're very happy. And we're, we're actually, um, I think for the majority, you know, we, it's, it's great to hear that a government is taking interest um, in our little industry and are willing to make those big adjustments from the top that will hopefully trickle down to uh, the little people. 
and then there's I think there are some that are um, a little bit hesitant, maybe, or um, are sort of holding their breath to see whether this will actually bring about any tangible sort of change. And also not just that, but there's been a lot of copyright talk, but not so much action. So I think for a, a, a minority, they're sort of quietly waiting to see whether this will actually really happen and, um, and to what degree. Mm. What does the government need to do to ensure the review brings about successful reforms? Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things there, Hugo. N- number one, uh, you know, uh, coming from the industry, I really believe in pub- public-private partnership. And I think the government support is welcomed. Um, and we would urge the government to, you know, actively seek um, input and collaboration from the private sector. Um, there's different entities that we have here, whether it's the artist, um, broadcast, uh, radio, um, live performances. And if they can include like our music labels, um, you know, digital platforms, even venues, um, I think that's a way forward. And such collaborations will be, I think, instrumental in um, co-creating the, the um, support for PNG's own CMO. Um, and we also... Uh, you know, even little things like whether it's um, tax breaks or especially grants. Like uh, as a member of APRA, we receive a lot of grant opportunities um, and we don't really have those things here in Papua New Guinea. Um, so grants or maybe ha- maybe perhaps low interest loans or something to encourage the private sector to invest more in the music industry would be fantastic. Um, and, you know, Things like financial commitment would be fantastic from um, for the from the government to the private sector, um, and uh, especially for these things to really take off, like consult consultative forums, um, I think would be great. And CMA is a big advocate for establishing those regular consultative um, forums and working groups. Um, that bring together government representatives, uh, the private sector stakeholders and, and artists. And these forums will provide a platform to discuss policy, um, regulation and industry development uh, collaboratively. And so I, I would really encourage that from an industry point of view. And, and finally, just to do some awareness campaigns, like, like I said, there's a large amount of artists that don't really know what's going on in this is all a bit new to them. So um, in the Central Music Association, like we endorse conducting awareness campaigns to educate the private sector, um, you know, on the economic and cultural value of the music industry. And such campaigns can um, inspire participation and investment from private as well as government entities. And that is Alan Kadir, president of the Central Music Association. He was speaking to ABC's Hugo Hodge. Pacific Beat. eBay is a global brand name, one many people in the Pacific would be familiar with. But in Fiji, scammers have used the famous brand to steal up to a million dollars from unsuspecting investors. One group helping to shut down the scam is the Consumer Council of Fiji. So joining us live this morning is the council's CEO, Sima Shandil. With that I say, Bula Sima. 
Bula and uh, Bula to all the listeners out there. Thank you for joining us, Asima. Well, first of all, is the eBay shop in any way linked to eBay, the international shopping site? Um, no, so to say, um, when we came became aware of uh, you know eBay or shop being as uh, you know being existent in Fiji and uh, conducting a business something like similar to pyramid scheme, what we did was we communicated with the eBay International to just see whether there was any link between the eBay shop in Fiji and them, and they came out very clearly stating that they have got no nothing whatsoever to do with the eBay shop in Fiji. Uh, we also cross checked with Best Buys because there were some claims being made that they have some, uh, you know, they're doing business for Best Buys as well. Uh, and they all, and, and what the, the, the response we got from both eBay's and Best Buys were that they were in no way linked to the eBay online shop in Fiji. Mm, thanks for clarifying that, Sima. Uh, but how did this scheme work and how was it actually able to fool people? Um, actually, you know, they use the social media platform to market themselves. So what they were doing was they were, you know, coming online uh, on TikToks, on uh, Twitter, in uh, social, I mean, Facebook pages, uh, trying to lure unsuspecting individuals through you know referrals to download the messaging app which is the telegram for communication purpose so upon joining the participants were to receive a link from to a website created by the operators of the scheme and the website was you know actually offered them an enticing pre-trial whereby the users were presented with five online orders to process by clicking confirm order so they were giving a, a perception to the people that they were being um, employed or they were provided employment and by clicking they will be earning um, you know income so when they actually did that then um, they were upon registration they con- the the people were required to process five orders in a day and this was simply done by clicking submit order on the same website. So processing each order, the consumers were given USD $1 as commission. And upon processing all five orders through a simple click, consumers were to earn a commission of USD $5. And uh, so, you know, in order to do that, the people were uh, asked to upgrade to different plans. And there were different plans where uh, the people were asked to pay between FJD $1,160 to FJD $6,400. So it depend, um, you know, dependent on the people as to how much they wanted to invest. So this is how they were trying to lure people into and then, you know, how pyramid scheme works. So initially those who were, um, you know, recruited in the initial phases were able to get some return. And these were the people who started acting as agents, going around recruiting people, telling them stories of how they are making thousands of dollars from the initial investment and this is how you know they these predators were able to prey on the vulnerabilities of people because um as we know you know people uh, are always eager to make uh, easy cash so they thought by sitting at uh, in their homes and their offices they'll be able to make a quick buck so this is how they were luring the people you know into getting into the scheme yeah, Seema, it seems like uh, there were quite a few people affected by the scam. Do you know how many, though? 
uh you know we have started receiving complaints we are registering complaints not only consumer council of fiji but you know there is a multi agency task force that has been uh, formed to look into uh, you know su- the such schemes and uh, consumer council of fiji of uh, uh, the central bank which is the reserve bank of fiji the fiji police force and the fijian consumer uh, competition they are all working together to receive complaints for consumer council of fiji alone we have received uh, since last week tuesday to to uh, 4:30 yesterday we received around 859 complaints which is worth around 1.6 million dollars so this is um, you know just the complaints that consumer council of fiji has received leaving aside other enforcement agencies who are also receiving complaints from consumers and we believe this is the tip of the iceberg because not everyone is coming forth they are scared because they know they have invested in something that was illegal so as i'm saying as i'm sp- talking to you they are all calls coming in as well today where people are trying to register the calls but we have assured or made it very clear to the people that you know there is no assurance that they will be refund, getting their refund because we don't know where the money is it's just that we are trying to um see you know how the the permit scheme or how this uh, scheme came into place how they were actually operating and how they were able to um you know um you know how they were able to operate it at such a large large scale and you know we can say this is arguably one of the biggest scams in Fiji's history uh, you said around 859 complaints came in so when did your office first become aware of this eBay shop scam um back in april you know we had some uh, people you know some stories where the words were spreading around that uh, you you know people were sharing their stories their successful stories how they are earning cash by investing certain amount and they were trying to recruit people and somebody approached the council as well and then we started doing our investigations and after thorough investigation as i have already alluded to earlier on that you know we communicated with this uh, ebay international best buys and other um 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 online sellers that they were claiming to be uh, doing business for to get uh, information whether actually this was a legitimate business and then once we concluded with the investigation what we did we as a advocacy organization you know uh, the consumer council of fiji started raising alerts we started raising awareness and the first alert went down in july we were trying to tell people to refrain from doing this because we knew that this was a pyramid scheme and it's going to collapse and this is nothing new because we know that there's a rise of uh, such schemes after covid because there were a lot of people who were left at home um, unemployed and the the predators or the scammers so this opportune time to prey on to the vulnerable so we started raising our uh, awareness and not only consumer council of fiji you know we saw that a lot of other organizations we as an advocacy organization and there are other organizations the enforcement agencies they also started raising um, awareness and alerts um, and you know uh but people decided not to take heed of uh you know as they decided to just ignore us because there were other people telling them stories of uh, successfully making um um huge income from in the, the investment with this eBay online uh shop if you've just tuned in we're speaking to CEO of Consumer Council of Fiji Sima Shandil on this eBay scam in Fiji Sima is it just a Fiji based scam or are you aware that there's operators somewhere else overseas so um you know i can delve deeper into the investigations that have been got 
that is being currently carried out the Fiji police force. But we have suspects, like, you know, we, we feel that it has been operated by somewhere else, but we just have agents in Fiji who actually, you know, going around, as I have already, um, you know, said uh, previously uh, earlier on that uh, we feel that, you know, there were people operating from outside Fiji, but, you know, as usual, there were agents who were minding the business in Fiji because there were offices open uh, across across the country. So agents were actually the ones who were manipulating, who were, you know, targeting the people and getting them on board. And surprisingly, it's not just the wonder, but surprisingly, we have seen a lot of working people who were actually investing in this uh, scheme. Yeah, I mean, what action now has been taken against uh, eBay's shop? Sorry. Have there been any arrests or have people been sent to jail? Um, as I have just said that, you know, there's a full investigation going on. Um, uh, there have been uh, numerous, um, you know, statements being made. There has been an interagency uh, um, task force that has been formed by our line ministry and our uh, minister and who are looking into um, such cases. So the investigation is going on. Um, the the um, you know, all the the shops that were open around the country have been closed down so that, you know, the operations can come to a stop. And the thorough investigation is now being conducted by the Fiji Police Force. Well, to those who are listening in then, Seema, what would the advice be from your office against schemes like this? Um, you know, we would just like to, um, you know, whether it's, I mean, we know this is not a new thing. We know this is not only happening in Fiji. Scams is uh, everywhere, whether it's, uh, you know, globally people are, have been victims of scams. But, you know, what, uh, as I said, we have continuously raised awareness. And what we could see was that uh, uh, people were not taking heed of our uh, uh, advice. They were not taking uh, heed of whatever, uh, you know, um, information we were trying to disseminate. We were trying to stop them, but they were like, um, no, we are making money. So what I would like to advise to consumers is that, um, you know, it's a lesson for us now. It's a lesson for the people of Fiji. And, you know, we would like to encourage them to take heed of the advice that comes out from the advocacy body or the enforcement bodies, because we, um, you know, care for them. We are here to protect their rights and interests, and that is the very reason why we do investigation and why we come out very you know, openly with the help of the media, advocate and raise awareness and raise alert. So uh, in future, you know, if you come across such things, it's very it's imperative for all the members of society to exercise caution, to conduct, you know, uh, thorough due diligence. And you remain wary of the schemes because we are living in a digital age and these such uh, schemes are going to continuously come. There's, I mean, there's no way that we can stop such schemes. But you have to be very wary because oh, most of the time we are on social media platforms where such schemes are being marketed and, you know, people are being influenced and manipulated. But it is you who can make the right choice. It is who, you who can make yeah. the right decision and you know making such uh, investing money in such schemes does not assure that you are going to get a return because you mm. don't know who's operating from the other side of the account you don't actually know the person so it's always good to invest in legitimate 
investment businesses. Thank you so much, Seema, for your time this morning. We have come to the end of the show. That is Seema Shandell, CEO of the Consumer Council of Fiji. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow at 6am PNG time, and you can hear us this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation.